I hate black and white caricatures. In crime reporting, that's often what we're left with. There's bad guys and good guys. And, you know, TV tells us that the good guys wear blue and the bad guys don't. The world doesn't usually work like that. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. In the summer of 2006, the RCMP announced that for months they'd been monitoring what they described as a terror cell in southern Ontario. As a result of their investigation, 18 young men had been arrested. Authorities said that the men were inspired by Al-Qaeda and were planning a series of attacks on Canadian soil. They said they had evidence that the men had plans to bomb the CSIS building in Ottawa and the Toronto Stock Exchange. Then they'd seize the CBC Broadcast Centre in Toronto so they could televise their exploits across the country. Also alleged was that the group had plans to storm Parliament Hill, taking hostages and even beheading the Prime Minister. Initially, National Post reporter Adrian Humphreys was just going to cover the crimes that these men were charged with. But like so much of Adrian's work, it went deeper than that. And over the course of more than a decade, he ended up telling a story not just of radicalization, but of rehabilitation. So today, the 18 men that were arrested are known colloquially as the Toronto 18. Can you tell me a bit about who they were and what brought them together? These were a group of largely young Muslim men uh, living in Canada around the GTA who were by and large watching the events of the world unfold around them with consternation and concern. So this was a time when we had uh, the 9-11 terror plots, we had uh, the counter strikes and the war in Afghanistan. We had a lot of really aggressive actions around the world, much of it dividing along religious and ideological grounds of the widest nature. So now this group, like I said, was very young, largely teens and 20s, a couple a little older. And they had a couple of very fiery, charismatic firebrands amongst them that was urging them that they needed, they needed to do something. And they needed to do something bold and dramatic. They couldn't be passive observers. They tested remote detonators. They ran terrorist training camps in the woods, and they bought chemicals to build bombs. Or they tried to. You know, the Canadian spy agency had um, targeted a number of the people for closer attention and scrutiny because of their things they've said in online communities. And they had two particular cooperators. One was a guy involved in agriculture with an agricultural background that the authorities put forward as a potential source of fertilizer, which is a, contains a chemical needed for bombs that they could order through him. And another one, he helped them with the training camps and he helped them with uh, their tactics and strategy. And they, they looked to him as someone who had military training and yet still had uh, seemingly shared their aggressive ideology. Between them, I mean, the authorities had had them 
under, you know, an embarrassing coverage of their secret plotting. They, when they bought the three tons of fertilizer, I mean, they weren't actually getting fertilizer. The fertilizer had been replaced by the RCMP with an inert substance. And so that when this um, huge shipment of alleged fertilizer arrived, these guys got out to start unloading it into their warehouse. And that's when sort of the SWAT team moved in and arrested them. But there never would have been a bomb because of the proactive policing and uh, observation of the group. Seventeen people were arrested in that first sweep, and then another making up this Toronto 18. And some of them are young offenders, and uh, you know were sort of never publicly named. And some charges were stayed and dropped along the way. Eleven of them, if I'm recalling correctly, went on to be found guilty of some terrorism offenses. Some were given life sentences, and some were given just a few years sentences, depending on their level of involvement and depending on the evidence of their actual knowledge of what the plot was, and so forth. And you actually had heard wind of this before the arrest, didn't you? You'd had sources telling you that something was coming. We were aware something was coming on the counterterrorism front, something big, something important, before the raids and before the case became public knowledge. My colleagues and I figured out one piece of it in the weeks before the arrest, and I found out the names through sources of two men who had been, they'd been caught smuggling guns across the border from the United States into Canada. And this was deemed to be part of the plot. We weren't really sure how exactly, but I went down to Niagara and I pulled their court documents and started in, started digging into them. When the sweeps came, however, that gun smuggling end ended up being very much on the fringes of it all. The entire plot and the entire allegations were so much bigger than that, it was, it was enormous. So it was like a new tsunami. It was immediately clear that this was an unusual moment and likely a very important moment. To me, it was Canada's wake-up call for the international war on terror. It forced Canada and Canadians to directly face the idea of domestic terrorism, of homegrown terrorism, of the influence of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda right here at home. It made me, and I think it made most Canadians, really fully realize that it wasn't just America, it wasn't just the stars and stripes that were targets in this global struggle. It was our flag, it was our humble bread maple leaf as well. And I figured it was exactly the sort of story that would stay with us. The idea that an attack like this could be planned here in Canada sent some people into a panic. And the media didn't necessarily ease those anxieties. I mean, I've been to an awful lot of court hearings, and this is certainly among, if not the biggest circus uh, <laughs> I've seen in, you know. Uh, so when they first appeared in court, I believe it was on a Saturday, if I'm remembering correctly, and it's in the large, very large courthouse in Brampton, Ontario, surrounded by a huge parking lot. And tactical police officers, these are the ones that look like soldiers, right, wearing black and carrying machine guns and helmets, they ring the courthouse. There was police cars everywhere. There was a helicopter hovering overhead. And I, when I looked up to watch the helicopter, I saw snipers on the rooftops with guns pointing down at us. I mean, the security was being taken extremely seriously. For my colleagues and I, when you were walking into the courthouse, it meant passing through bomb-sniffing dogs and metal detectors. Our bags were searched. We were frisked and questioned, showing ID. Anyone who arrived anywhere near that courthouse who looked Middle Eastern, who had a dark beard or was wearing a hijab, was immediately surrounded by cameras and microphones. They would walk with them, reporters asking awkward questions. 
It was all very strange. Over the years, Adrian followed the so-called Toronto 18 as they moved through the prison system. Three of them stood out to him. Zachariah Amara is, when I talked about these firebrand charismatic leaders, you know, he gave speeches and did a lot of the recruitment and inspiration. He was driving things forward. He was very mission-focused. Whenever he felt that uh, things were being a distraction, he wanted to get back on track to make things happen. He later admitted at a parole hearing I covered that, you know, he was being driven to overcome any obstacle. So when people sort of talk about the plot never being able to get, really get off, you know, he openly admits that he would do everything he could to have made sure it did. He was, in the vernacular, a hardline jihadist ideologue. Did he ever explain what motivated those feelings? He was motivated by uh, injustice that he saw around him. Uh, he was motivated by Canada's war in Afghanistan, Canada's militant role in the war on terror. He was motivated by Osama bin Laden. He praised Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. He was an interesting case because he was seen as so dangerous and so anathema to Canada that the government revoked his citizenship, you know, brought in a new legislation. He was the first person, I believe, to be the target of new legislation that would allow Canadians to be stripped of their citizenship. The Canadian government at the time called him the worst of the worst. Hmm. Now, the court later overturned that decision on his citizenship. But he continued in prison to be among the hardest of the bunch. He was unrelenting and dogmatic in prison. He got into a very dark place, in his words, and uh, he shunned those around him, even family, because they didn't agree with what he had done. He was unapologetic and unrelenting for many years, and that apparently did change. He talked a lot about that at the parole hearings I've attended for him. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so is he still in prison? So he was given a life sentence. He was sent to what's called the SHU, S-H-U, which stands for the Special Handling Unit. And it's the place for the hardest core, most dangerous offenders. I saw him 15 years later, bent over, clutching his chest, gasping for air as he wept. And he tried to say, not pleading for his freedom or for anything other than he was just trying to express to the parole board how meaningful the support was for those who didn't give up on him during his incarceration, particularly his sister. And it was intriguing to see this hardcore, unrelenting, unrepentant jihadist in such a vulnerable, emotional state. He said that the beginnings of his rehabilitation, the turnaround for him, ironically, I guess, came from greater and more recent atrocities, those committed by ISIS fighters. So he was watching the news of the Islamic State, their kidnappings and their beheadings and their all the terrible things that they were doing in the name of their interpretation of Islam. And he was appalled. <laughs> so he said that drove him to completely reevaluate his beliefs. He spoke in detail over hours over his personal transformation, over, you know, 15 years behind bars. He, he, you know, it was no epiphany. He didn't wake up one morning. He didn't say that, you know, he's converted religions or had any of that. It's he rejected his radical beliefs within his interpretation of Islam over a slow, hard 15 years. 
Amara believed he was ready to step back into society. But Corrections Canada wasn't quite sure how to make that call. Corrections Canada has a great deal of experience for programming, substance abuse treatment, domestic violence counseling and treatment. They didn't have programs to de-radicalize radical believers. And so when it came time for these people to face the parole board, the parole board typically has a list of all the programs they completed as signs that they're on their path to redemption, that the signs that they are ready to be let out into the community and not pose a danger. So yes, see, this former drug addict has been clean for X number of years. This former fraud artist now has uh, taken counseling for exhibiting empathy towards uh, victims. Uh, this person who was a member of a biker gang has quit the biker gang and is no longer associated with these, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. There was nothing like that for these guys. So the parole board had very little information to convince themselves that they should release some of the most notorious and potentially dangerous people into back into Canadian society. So that was a hurdle for each and every one of these people to, uh, to overcome. But for Amara, it was particularly tough because he was known as this leader and the firebrand and the charismatic leader and the diehard. So what he did, he had an interesting idea. He volunteered to undergo multiple days of interrogation by the RCMP's national security investigators to assess what they think, what threat he will still pose if released. And so for two days, Canada's uh, national police force, national security experts sat down with Amara and delved through his background, his time in prison, his motivation factors, his changing beliefs, his relationships with people, his, and so on and so forth. And they reported to the parole board. Now, we're not privy to all of the details in that very lengthy process. But I do know what was summarized at the parole hearings, and that's that the RCMP was satisfied that he no longer posed a significant risk to Canadians because of changes in transformation and rehabilitation over the last 15 years or so. So at the conclusion of his last parole hearing, the parole board came back and said, we're actually going to then take a gamble, I guess, is probably how they're thinking of it, and, uh, and gave him some day parole freedom. And uh, that would be his sort of first taste of freedom for a very long time. And um, let's hope he's anxious to, uh, to prove himself that they made the right decision on that. The second man Adrian followed over the years was Sharif Abdel Halim. He was named in court as a key architect of the bomb plot, and he was also given a life sentence. He was different from the others. He was older. He was already established. He had money and means. Uh, he wasn't a student. He wasn't a young radical. He was actually um, quite a consumerist. He, you know, had a BMW and spent, you know, more money on a coat than, you know, probably all the other <laughs> plotters combined spent on their grocery bills. He was a software designer. He was doing um, day trading in the stock markets. You know, he said his motivation was a little different. He also got very angry with the geopolitical world around him. But he also had this real need for acceptance. He felt like an outsider. He was unsatisfied with his life. He referred to himself as just a consuming pig that didn't contribute anything. And I think he was looking for some sort of bond and contributing something to a cause that he grasped onto. So he was given a life sentence. And I went to a parole hearing for him, and he was inside a Quebec prison. And, you know, again, there's these stark 
divides between what we know and think we know about a person based on a court hearing and the crimes they committed, and then the person themselves. So here was Sharif Abdahalim, key architect of the bomb plot, and he's in prison, and on his way to his parole hearing, he's so nervous that just at the door of the parole hearing, he throws up. And you hear him vomiting, you hear him apologizing to staff, I'm very sorry, sorry for the mess, I'll clean it up right after my hearing. And then he sort of walks in and he looks and acts like the proverbial bull in a china shop. He's not a socially nimble man. So he can never quite pull off this presentation of the change that he professes. At another parole hearing, Abdahalim was trying to emphasize how he was no longer a threat or dangerous to the parole board. In an attempt to emphasize his point, he overemphasizes it and he adds, I'd rather die than reoffend. And he completely forgot that with his past and the bomb plots and the nature of jihad and the terror attacks, that he has to be more careful with his choice of words. A parole board member immediately looks alarmed and quickly says to him, are you referring to a martyrdom attack or a suicide attack? And he, like, he throws his hands up as if he's like surrendering. He's waving the palms of his hands in front of himself. Edward. No, no, no. It's just an expression. I'd rather die. It's just an expression. That's not what I meant. And it was like a dark comedy. You know, it wasn't so serious. You'd burst out laughing. So he faced similar challenges over the prison system, but he was eventually granted day parole so that he could study at college in Montreal. And to my knowledge, that's where he remains to this day. And finally, there was Syed Gaya. Syed Gaya is perhaps the most extraordinary transformation story of all of those that I followed. He was a young, naive, radicalized student at the time, and he tried to bomb the Toronto Stock Exchange, the spy agency, a military base. He was sentenced to 12 years. He wasn't a leader. In fact, he was one of the first arrested because we talked about the fake fertilizer being delivered by you know, cooperating police agents to the terror plotters. He was actually one of the young men that were there. He helped rent the warehouse to store the chemicals for the bombs in and was in the middle of unloading. He'd set up cardboard boxes with garbage bags in to contain the fertilizer that was being delivered that he was expecting. And he was unloading this uh, product when the SWAT team moved in. And um, online there's video that the police released of them being arrested by, again, these police that look like soldiers and knocking them to, you know, putting them on the ground and arresting them. So he was among the first and that sort of triggered the wave of arrests, that delivery. He was allowed out of prison on parole in late 2015. He was described as um, different from the start. And we know this because one of the people presenting on his behalf was a member of the RCMP's national security team who made the Terror 18 case and arrests back in 2006. He said he'd maintained contact with them over the years, that uh, he was cooperative, that he showed remorse, repentance, and rehabilitation far earlier than the others. He worked with the RCMP about to, you know, openly discussing counter-extremist recruitment and uh, de-radicalization theory. And he got out of prison fairly early, after 12 years, and he was allowed on parole to continue his studies. 
So he, he never gave up hope. Some of the others, you know, didn't do anything to keep their lives going outside prison because they went down to this dark hole like uh, Zachariah Amara. But he never did. He continued to do his education. He continued to complete his courses. When he got out on parole, he actually went to law school. And he passed his law degree. And then he had to apply to become a lawyer. You have to convince the law society that you're, quote, of good character. And his application, obviously, you have to answer this questionnaire, have you ever been charged or convicted of a criminal offense? And his very big yes, uh, a 12-year sentence for terrorism. That's a big hurdle. So I was covering his law society hearings and his application to be a licensed lawyer was supported by a retired judge, several lawyers, law school professors, extremism researchers, his parole officer, imams, and again, this RCMP national security investigator. So he had this broad base of people who believed in him and believed in his rehabilitation and believed in his profound change in life. Incredible. And what's he doing now? He's practicing as a lawyer in Toronto. I'm just curious if you can tell us a little bit about how you do this reporting. You don't let go of these stories for 10 years. Are you just constantly in touch with their families? Are you always looking for freedom of information requests? I mean, what went into the reporting of these stories? Well, at the beginning, it was very much a, you know, a cooperative effort. You know, the entire newsroom was thrown into it at the start, and I had a close colleague that took the lead on a lot of it. But Certain stories stick with you, and this was sort of one of them. I hate black and white caricatures. In crime reporting, that's often what we're left with. There's bad guys and good guys. And, you know, TV tells us that the good guys wear blue and the bad guys don't. Or the, there's the white hats and the black hats. The world doesn't usually work like that. People can change. People have families. People do things for different reasons. We don't always know what's really going on in their hearts and in their minds. So I like to look for those shades of gray. I like to look for how people progress. I think I talked last podcast about I like to do things a little holistically. I don't, you know, I can't always do it, but I like to try and follow things along. So I like to, I like to cover the arrest. I like to try and, if not cover, then keep tabs on the trials and the convictions. And I like to attend parole hearings as an observer. I've gone to sometimes close to a dozen parole hearings for the same individual over years. And, um, you know, I know all their family. They don't necessarily like me, but they know me and I've become part of the furniture in their cases. You know, that's sort of part of my philosophy. In in this case, I lost track of a lot of them. But uh, in the case of these three, I just wanted to try and uh, bring the story into a full circle. Some of them maybe wanted to disappear into anonymity. I don't think necessarily that's uh, the best course for society or for them, but um, you know, I, I don't have motivation beyond good stories and public knowledge in knowing how some of the biggest stories of our lifetime or our generations end up.
This episode of True Crime Byline is produced by Emily Morantz and Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Mixing and sound design by Philip Wilson. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica. Special thanks to Rob Roberts, the editor-in-chief of The National Post, and Aaron Valois, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media. 